Hi, I'm Karen Osborne, and this is Living in the Sandwich Zone, a place where each week we talk all things parenting, caregiving, juggling life, and reclaiming joy. Hey, welcome back to Living in the Sandwich Zone. Over the holidays, as I was just kind of getting this podcast up and running, I had the opportunity to talk to my friend, Jennifer Stinson. And Jennifer and I have known each other since the elementary school years where our kids were in the same class a long, long time ago. And at the time that we spoke, it was right after Christmas, and our family, the Osbournes, were recovering from COVID. And she was on vacation um, visiting her dad with her family in Arizona. In addition to being a wife and a mom of two teenagers, Jennifer is also a licensed clinical psychologist who over the last 15 plus years has done a lot of community mental health work with kids and families. For the past five years, she has been in private practice with Soul Tenders, a mental health group in San Marino, California. In part one of our conversation, we talk about the critical shortage of therapists and the prolific need for mental health care. And we also talk about the cumulative feeling of overwhelm in trying to deal with all that's been going on in the world. And then in part two of our conversation, Jennifer shares a hack with me to help answer the hardest question that I face every day. What's for dinner? We also talk about how she created a looking forward list to help her get her family up and excited to start every day. So Jennifer and I actually talked about a lot of other things, but these parts I thought would be really good to share with you. At the time we spoke, Jennifer didn't know about all that had gone on with Linny and her mental health struggle. So we started by me filling her in a little bit about that. So take a listen to my conversation with Jennifer Stinson. The shell-shocking reality of, of what we've been facing has been um, just, yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. And so um, Linz did five weeks of residential care mm-hmm. and then did step-down programming after that mm-hmm. um, and then was able to return to school in the fall. And um, it hasn't been... A, a road without its bumps. We've definitely had the ups and downs. And I think that that is part and parcel of what we've learned is that, mm-hmm. you know, the struggles with anxiety and depression are not just, you know, band-aidable. You know, you can't just slap a, a quick right. fix on it and think that everything's okay. It's just, you, you learn how to ride the waves. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of what's happened is that um, she's learned a lot of different coping strategies and I have too. And I've come to recognize and come to a place of more acceptance that I can't fix it. Mm-hmm. I can't fix it. And the best thing that I can do is be there for her in a way to validate everything that she's going through, mm-hmm. to okay. do outreach for care and support yes. that I can't provide. Mm-hmm. and, you know, and know that I can't control it. Mm-hmm. I can't control it. I can support it, and I can support her on the journey, but we each have these unique 
individual journeys that we're on. And so that's, right. it's been a lot of letting go. Yeah. It's been a lot of letting go and, and recognizing I don't have control over much. Right, right. Although what you just said, like validating and outreaching and, you know, adding to the support that I'm not, you know, it's beyond my scope of what I can offer. Like those are really, when you say that's not much, also those are a lot, that is a lot to do. Like it's maybe doesn't feel like, enough, or you wish you could have more, right? But like, also that is very powerful. That is exactly like. And I think what you're saying is, is important for me to internalize. It's one of those things where I think I still am inclined to discount mm -hmm. the things that I can do yeah. as opposed to just immerse myself wholeheartedly and say, this is what I can do. And I can do this well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's meaningful and it's helping. It's not nothing. Like it's like, this is very important what I'm doing. Maybe it's not everything, but it's so important. It's like a cornerstone. Yeah. So I know that your therapy practice is with adults. Yeah. And even with, I'm going to say even with adults, whether it's adults or adolescents, uh -huh. um, what I discovered through mm -hmm. all of this is what a huge shortage there is. Oh my gosh. Right of now, care providers. Huge shortage. Yes, it's, that is true. That has just gotten steadily more and more true. I think during the during the course of this pandemic, I can tell you what I've noticed in my practice is that first of all, I have about 30 clients, which I had, that was about my, that's kind of my max. That's what I had pre-pandemic and I've stayed really steady. And the thing is nobody, people who maybe were sort of ready to kind of end therapy, you know, pre-pandemic, all of a sudden, oh no, like, no, like nobody wants to end therapy. <laughs> totally get that. Because, we're going through this, right? So the, yeah. so the, you know, the natural ebb and flow of like, okay, some people are not needing this anymore and new people come in, but there's like not, like the ebb and flow kind of stopped because everybody was like, mm. and then- I was so glad. I was so glad I had <laughs> right? a long and deep relationship with my therapist when all this broke loose. Yes. I don't know what I would have done. Seriously, in all honesty. So there's that. And then I had people who I had were former clients of mine that I'd stopped seeing and they read a lot of them. I mean, I probably had at least eight or nine people reach back out and say, can I resume? And I tried to juggle and make places for everybody. But then as this pandemic's gone on and just as time has gone on, like I've gotten so many emails um, from people looking for therapists. And then I work with a big therapy group called Soul Tenders and we have like an administrative office. So sometimes people contact me directly and sometimes people contact our administrative office to find a therapist. And what I know from talking to the people who work in our administrative offices, like they get, they were getting like two and 300 calls a day from people looking for therapists. No, now we are really big. We have over a hundred therapists and we're constantly expanding and hiring new people. But like, we've just had a wait list, wait list, wait list. And so it's really hard to know, you know, that there is such high demand and that we yeah. can't serve everybody. Like I can't take a right. Goal, right. I can only see a certain amount of people, but I always try to give someone, you know, contact your insurance provider, contact our administrative office, or here's a referral for this kind of specialty. And if they're full, ask them who they recommend to, or ask them if they have a wait list. 
but yes, there's been a huge demand that I think has just sort of increased over time. And then therapists are less available because our caseloads have been very full and very steady. Right. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what would you advise? Like what is some good go-to advice for someone in a crisis, you know, whether it's like me in a parental crisis, really struggling to support my child or perhaps a child that you know needs additional help and you're confronted with this wait list thing. Yeah. Because that, you know, especially when you're dealing with mm-hmm. suicidal ideation. That, yeah, you cannot be. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, if I, if I don't get help now, right. there may not be a tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what do you do? What's, what's the, what's the course of action? I mean, for me, I'm like preemptively, every parent should just like have a therapeutic contact <laughs> You know, in place, it's like signing up for preschool. Get on it early. Get on it early. Yeah. Um, Right. Okay. Well, that's one solution. Um, That's really hard when you're talking about something that is so urgent. You're right. Like, if it's at that level, yeah, you need sort of crisis care. And there are, I mean, I guess at that point, you call. I'm not sure how you guys manage that, Karen, but like, I would say call suicide hotline, call you know, 911, but I would go with suicide hotline first or like a hospital or something that like is trained to provide immediate crisis psychiatric intervention. Um, yeah, it's, it's really tough, especially, you know, so my training and background, I spent half of my career working in the juvenile court system mm-hmm. and, you know, the criminal court system. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I know with certainty is that that whole aspect of mental health mm-hmm. is we are just so woefully inadequate in terms of mental health intervention mm-hmm. um, that it's it's there's almost I think a reluctance maybe on my part you know you talk about calling 911 mm-hmm. and I know how overburdened the court systems are I know how um, often mental health is overlooked and the only focus is on behavior and bad Mm -hmm. behavior and then you know an individual becomes criminalized Mm -hmm. when really they need therapeutic intervention absolutely yeah and so there's 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 like a recoil for me in terms of reaching out for help yeah and I think it's something that we really have to dismantle because I'm seeing it just as a parent. I saw it as a lawyer, you know, this steep incline in terms of mental health crises. And, you know, perhaps it's because we're seeing more because people are being more willing to talk about it openly. And it's not this clandestine kind of whispering behind the scenes. and I think we're understanding more about it. Like we can name yeah. more things like anxiety, like, oh, this is what anxiety looks like. That's what you're experiencing. Oh, you're experiencing depression. Oh, we understand more the impact of trauma than we did, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But I just think, I think that it's just, it is paralyzing almost when I look at the shortage of practitioners and the intensity of need. It just, what do you do? What do you do? 
Yes. Well, I don't know the answer to that question. That's another feeling like that feeling you were describing as a mom and just being like, oh, that I just feel helpless sometimes. Like, I don't know, I can't do everything. And it's the same in terms of, it's a bit parallel, right? As like a mental health practitioner knowing that, okay, I can try my very best to like give the best care and support to the people in my caseload and try to find the best referrals and linkages to the people who reach out to me and to do my very best to like promote good mental health in just the way I live in the world. But like- Right. I don't, you know, like when you start thinking about sort of the big picture, it can be so overwhelming and like a helpless feeling. And I think what you just said is kind of what I ended up doing. And I know that it it really became, um, you know, so not only did I have a child in crisis, Mm -hmm. not only did the pandemic kick in, so then my dad, who is 86 now, Mm -hmm. Uh, has been having a lot, a lot of health issues. And he's been in and out of the hospital a bunch this year. And then you had like the race issues that came to be. Right, yes. I mean, when George Floyd was killed, it was for me like, I mean, that feeling of utter paralysis paralysis and helplessness mm-hmm. I, I I don't know that I could have handled one more thing and then that came yeah and as a black family yeah there were just so many I mean overwhelmed and so I was in a position where I I did not have the time the energy the bandwidth to think about what I could do to help change the course of the tide of the world. Right. Um, and I had to do what you just said. It was kind of like distill it down mm-hmm. to the people that I would interact with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And how can I just concentrate and focus on my actions? I, I couldn't leave my kid and go protest. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't, I, I wasn't sleeping. Oh, I, I was completely hypervigilant, just trying to mind the safety of right. my kid right. in the world. Yeah. Right. And then that feeling of like, I need to be doing something. I need to be doing something about this. This is just like, it was, it was pure overwhelm yeah. at its highest. And I think that the only way that I was able to kind of get through was to, to distill it down to in my most minute contacts with others in this world, mm-hmm. can I be and present myself in their experience mm-hmm. as a source of good, mm-hmm. as a source of hope, mm-hmm. as a source of, you know, compassion. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of how, that's been the mantra, moment by micro moments. Yeah we shall get through, this too shall pass. Yeah. So. I 100% agree with that. Like that's the thing we can embrace or this touchstone we can come back to is just like, okay, I'm just gonna do my best on this day or this hour or this interaction or with this person or whatever it is, or to myself to be compassionate to myself. 
Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Jennifer coming up next. I'm Karen Osborne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Living in the Sandwich Zone. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you like this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Like, subscribe, follow the podcast, and share it with a friend. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, one of the best ways you can support me is rating and reviewing the podcast there. You can follow me on Instagram at karen.e.osborne. That's O-S-B-O-R-N-E. Or if you want to become an insider, a club sandwich member, click the link in the show notes and join my private Facebook group. Until next time, remember to add yourself to your caregiving list and take a moment today and do something that brings you joy.